The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. And our sermon will be looking at the entire second half of verse 12. But I'd like to read from verse 12 through verse 17. What you're about to hear really was breathed out by God and is still living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to discern and divide our thoughts and our intentions. So listen as God's word searches the hearts of those who hear. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated and invite you to pray with me. Our great God and Father, we thank you and praise you that we are indeed your own possession forever. That you have sought us out and by the strength of your arm saved us from our sins, rescued us from eternal death and fastened us inseparably to eternal life, that is your son. As we sit beneath your word today, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Father, as the rain and the snow goes forth from heaven and it causes the earth to bring forth fruit, we pray that that would be what your word does in our hearts today. That it would go forth and in the places in our hearts where thorn and thistle grow, cypress trees of righteousness would spring up. We pray that you'd shape us and make us more and more into the likeness and the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, something with which you are all, I'm sure, familiar with from church history, the uh, Westminster Catechism opens with those timeless words in the first question, what is the chief and the highest end of man? I, I mean, it is, there could be, well, I guess there'd be arguments if you're nerds and theologically minded geeks like myself and others, but uh, there's arguments as to whether or not that was the greatest question or if it was the Heidelberg That debate aside, 
What a big question. What were you created to do? It's hard to say that there's a bigger question, and the answer is it matches the caliber of the question that that asks it. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Now, we, we could hear that a couple of different ways, and the, and the way that I want to look at that this morning, or this morning, this afternoon, is if you are here and you're a Christian, you are a forgiven man, a forgiven woman, a forgiven child. You've been raised up spiritually with Christ, and now your life is not your own, but it belongs to Christ, and everything in your life, you don't even like the term your life, it belongs to him. You are one who, by the work of the Spirit in you, have had a fundamental shift from Wanting to seek you to wanting to seek him. Now you might say, well, if you could look in my heart, you would see a divided heart. I'm sure I would. But there is a shift that has happened nonetheless. While you might be able to say, I don't do it perfectly, I assuredly don't do it perfectly. You might say, I get so frustrated by all the ways I still wretchedly seek me, that aside, by God's work in your life, you can say with a clear conscience, I want my life to glorify God. I want to not just glorify him, I want, as the catechism says, to enjoy him. You want that. You want at the root and center of who you are, to not simply have a, a life that adheres to his standards uh, and, and laws in, in obedience. You want that, but you want more than that. You want to drink deeply. You want to know what the Psalms were talking about when they said, taste, see his goodness. As a Christian, you want that. One of the struggles that we bump into in this life is on the one hand, I can say, I want that. On the other hand, I, the, like the, next, the very next question is, what does that even look like? What is a life I'm, that has undergone a radical transformation from me wanting to pursue, glorify, and enjoy me to now my life is now bent on glorifying and enjoying God, what does that look like? And while we could get all sorts of complicated on the answers, I'll give you just the most rudimentary, basic, foundational answer. It looks like Christ being formed more fully in you each and every day. That's how you glorify God. That's how you enjoy God. Christ being shaped in you, 
What is not of him, cut away. Where, where you are lacking, filled in. I mean, that growth in Christ's likeness, that is what it is to glorify God and to live a life that drinks deeply of joys the world hasn't even got categories for. That's the Christian. Now, Paul, in our text, in, in, in the expanded section that I read and even beyond, it could be, as it were, answering that question. Now, what does a God glorifying and a God enjoying life look like? I want to hear the answers to that. Because in my heart of hearts, divided as it is, I want to glorify God and I want to enjoy him. And you, in your heart, even though there's still that war, there's that deep and abiding hunger for these things. Show me from the word what does a life that glorifies God look like? And so we will look at this text in about four pieces. The first of them being, let's review from last time because this is just, the text is too interdependent to to not, we'll do a little bit of review. So if you just look at the beginning of verse 12, Paul addresses you as the reader, and even in the way he addresses you, the reader, he's reminding you of who you are in the new man Christ, the old man being put off, the new man Christ being put on, and as he addresses you, the reader, he's reminding you of who and what you are now in the gospel, those gospel indicatives, we might say, those realities of who you are. And if you just run your eyes over them, he calls you God's chosen ones, those chosen by God before ever the foundations of the world were sunk into whatever it is you sink the foundations of the world into. He called you to be his own. He calls you a person who is holy as you've had a fundamental change in your relationship with sin. You have turned your back on sin and your face towards Christ. And now the trajectory and movement and direction of your life is heavenward and Christward. And you're traveling to Zion to be with him. That's what your life is, is wrapped up in. And then lastly, and, and maybe most staggeringly, although the first two are pretty staggering, he calls you beloved, a people defined by the love that God has placed on them. The mo- you, you could maybe make an argument, the most defining mark of the people of God, he loves them lavishly and eternally and everlastingly and unconditionally. I mean, he loves you, his bride. If you hear nothing else today, and I hope you hear more than that today, but if you hear nothing else today, know this. If you're in Christ, he loves you with a covenantal, stubborn love that will never give up on chasing you down. That's the foundation of the gospel that we need to then hear these things in. And now building up off that foundation, this is who you are, gospel indicatives or realities. And now the, the outflow of that to the, the imperatives. Put on or clothe yourself, we talked about last week. You have 
been stripped of your old filthy garments of the old life under the old Adam, and now is a new man, a new woman in Christ. You have apparel that both marks your life and your status as his son and as his daughter. You might say, what does that apparel look like? Well, it's something that we're meant to put on. It's interesting, and not just interesting, but I think vitally important, that the things that he will go on to mention are all operating on what we could call the horizontal plane. All of the things that he's about to mention are the ways that we treat one another. That's, I think, imminently fascinating and quite telling that our relationship with God must by necessity show itself this way. So that if I could give a rough translation of what John says in his first uh, epistle, don't you dare say, I love God, but I hate my neighbor. You don't then love God. The secondary one is a, a, a telltale sign and imminently connected to the first claim. So if you love God, it will show up where? It'll show up this way. It'll show up in the way that you treat one another. So far from it being second tier or second level, it is of utmost importance the way that we treat each other, the way that we treat our spouse, our kids, other church members. That stuff matters. It really, really does. As a new creation, this is, it, 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 is, it is a litmus test for how that relationship with God is flourishing. So often I've heard folks say that I love, I love Christ, I just am really annoyed with his bride. Those are fighting words to any husband. If you come up and tell me, Brian used this uh, analogy the other day, if you come up and tell me as a husband, like, you're great, but your wife really gets on my nerves. I'm <laughs> like, well, let's go. <laughs> There's that intimate connection there. And the same is true the way you treat the bride of Christ. Don't sing the stuff we sang to him today and then turn and backbite one another. Don't say the stuff we say we believe and then go verbally berate someone in your life, whether it's a child or spouse or a neighbor. You have new clothes. You have new ways of living. Put those off and put these on. Now, as a Christian longing to hear, how do I glorify God and enjoy him? He gives, to open up verse 12, five virtues. We only got through two last week. The first that we looked at is uh, putting on hearts of compassion. The Apostle Paul says that what, what, what is the mark of a Christian? What is that, that first piece of clothing that they, that they dawn upon their new way of living? It's a heart that is no longer uh, beating to the me, 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 I, 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 I. We got rid of the, we had a bad case of the I-me's, the I's and the me's. And now it, 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 it is bent 
towards others. Rather, with a, rather than a searching eye, always looking and be like, oh, better than him, better than him, better than like, It stops that mess, and it actually looks for ways to serve other people. And in their hurts, hurting. In their rejoicing, rejoicing. It moves with compassion. Or as we mentioned last week, it, it's to have uh, compassion down in, the, in your guts the center of who and what you are, and we can't lose sight of this, all of these virtues, we've seen them somewhere else before. They describe none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You are in the new Adam. How has he been to you? And how is he still? Oh, he has a heart of compassion for you. That even though distance separates him from you currently, His heart is no less compassionate now than it's ever been. It beats for his church. And so you might be going through just an immensely difficult season. Know this, your compassionate high priest loves you. And his heart is moved with compassion for you. And the petitions then as high priest that he petitions the Father for is born from a compassionate heart within his chest for you. That then is so fitting that we, his people called little Christians or little Christs, would like him have compassionate hearts not judgmental hearts, compassionate hearts, not harsh hearts, compassionate, not not always measuring one another against one another, hearts that look for ways to serve. Put it on as a new piece of clothing that mark you as a son or as a daughter. The second piece of clothing that we're commanded by God's word to put on is kindness. Kindness could be described or defined as an insistence on doing good. It is a stubborn benevolence. It is one that is not easily put off, but works and moves to bless other people in your life. It's the result of the Spirit's work, Galatians 5.22 says. It's, the, it's one of the primary marks of love, 1 Corinthians 13 says. It is so marked God's people that, as I mentioned last week, uh, Tertullian said that in seasons of immense persecution, the non-believing world, the, the pagans, would call Christians, kind of messing with that word Christian, they'd bend it so that it was the kindness people. It so marked God's people that they were known as the kind people. When nothing in their, in their life would be, kind of lend itself easily towards kindness, they were tenaciously kind. They were intent to do good to others. Now, I ask it again. Is that the way that Christ has been to you? Has Christ been, is he still, intent to do you good? And, and nothing and no one can push him off that course of action with you. Not the world, not your enemies, and guess not you. He's intent. He's stubborn in a good sense to do good to you. 
wouldn't it make sense that if our king is so adorned with clothing like that, that we would bear his colors, that we would dawn, as it were, kindness as the raiment of the children of light, as the, the, the things that mark us as his people. It, it's not a box to check. It's now who you are. Put it on. Dress like the king whom you follow to Zion. Secondly today, so that was review. Now into the new material We want to consider the third virtue to put on, second point, third virtue. I know that's kind of confusing, but we'll navigate it. Put on humility. Now, we haven't talked about humility or pride anytime recently. As I was listening to Brian this morning, I was like, people are going to think we talked about this. Line this up, we didn't. Uh, So, just the way that God's Spirit orchestrates it in the life of a church Paul has already used this word two times thus far in the letter, and both occasions were not, well, really, really good uses. You might say, how is there a bad use of humility? Well, if you want to turn back, you could peek back at verse 18 of chapter 2, and you would find Paul in the inspiration of the Spirit saying, let no one disqualify you, insisting on... If you have the ESV, Lord bless you, but it would say asceticism. So the word is humility. It's actually the same word in our text. Uh, Drop down to verse 23 of chapter 2. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. Same word, humility and severity to the body. Paul has warned us about off-brand clothing, if I could stretch the analogy a little bit, a false humility that is adorned by those masquerading as sons and daughters of Christ, but it is a false humility. It it is one that delights to be seen by men. It's one that that uses it oddly in uh, in the saying that it is putting oneself down. On the inside, I know I'm more humble than anyone else, and it builds this up. It's a humility that looks around and goes, pfft, I'm so humble, more humble than Eric and Don and any of these jokers around here. I mean, like, that's, that is not humility. That's a false humility. Pulses have nothing to do with it. The world has that. That's man-made religion. But there is a true religion. There is a true humility. There is a true Humbleness or lowness that marks God's people. That is a beautiful garment to be adorned. It is not a fake humility. It's not where you go, I know I'm better, but I'm going to tell myself and mainly others that I'm not, even though I know in my heart I am. Like, No, it is a, it's not a game that we play with ourselves or with other people. It's a true lowness. It is a real uh, posturing of oneself thinking in, in moments of clarity. I can't imagine that anyone has been forgiven as much as I've been forgiven. 
Just in, in just knowing your own dark heart rather than guessing like, I bet there's this darker. Like, no, going, man, I can't even understand how dark this thing is. I can't imagine another heart existence this dark. That is the beginnings of a real spirit-worked humility. As one author put it, he says, humility is the posture of one who submits to the lordship of Christ. True humility, uh, you might say, begins at that initial, Christ, you are Lord, I am not. In that, in that, in that huge shift from the tyrant of self to now the sovereign of Christ, in that shift, you, Christ is Lord, I am not Lord. Christ is Lord, no one else in the world is Lord. Only him. That, that's the beginning of humility. And then it flows out from that, listening to his law. If he's really the Lord, then guess what? His law is going to become the binding law of my life. And then that works its way out in the way that I love others in accordance with his law. Right? That humility first is vertical in its direction, but then by necessity has to work its way out this way, so that you could not say, like with regards to God, I'm super humble. With regards to everyone else, I'm a jerk. Like, no, 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 no. Those two can't be separated. They are together. The one flows out into the other. And you can tell, you can tell when you are around a saint who's walked long with Christ, there's a lowness. They are not a big deal in their own eyes. They know they're a great sinner who could only ever be conquered by an even greater Savior, and the rest of their life is just lived in gratitude and joy from that. Just can't get over it. It's good, because you should never get over that. And that then marks everything around them. If I could let Paul define what he means by humility, I'd turn to Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves. Notice again that horizontal movement. I look around and instead of saying, what can I get? What, what, would, what would serve me? What do I want in this? It looks around and says, there's a need. That's more important than mine. There's a need. There's someone who needs a friend. There's someone who needs, and it goes, it prioritizes the other. And instead of being the self-absorbed lover of self, I look around like, Lord, how can you use my five loaves and two fish? It isn't much, but could you use it in the lives of those around me? That is humility. It's a mark of love as well. While the word humility doesn't show up in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the idea does. Love does not insist on its own way. Love isn't true. The true Christian isn't pushy, self-loving, proud, needy, or demanding. The garment worn by sons and daughters is a low garment that is bent towards serving those around you. That, that is how we are to be adorned. 
and I'm going to ask at the end of it, so I'm going to just stop flagging it every time. Has Christ been this to you? Did, did he not view equality with God, something to be held on at to all costs, but he, but he emptied himself by becoming a man? And verse 8 says, being found in the form of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Is there not a humility even when Christ comes into the world to save you? Yes, the king is adorned in such clothes. So his people to be a humble people. To be putting the, the, the foot of our attention on the neck of pride and not being content to let pride sit idly by. We should be very uncomfortable with pride in our life. Not just uncomfortable, attacking it where we see it in our, heart, in our lives. Knowing that it is unbecoming of a son or a daughter of light to be adorned in such a perverse piece of clothing. That was under the old Adam. We are new in the new Adam and therefore to be a humble people. Thirdly, today, we want to consider that we are to put on meekness. Meekness. As one lexicon describes the word that Paul uses here, it is the quality of not being overly impressed with a sense of one's own importance. What a definition. Not overly impressed with a sense of one's own self-importance. You might look at it and say, okay, well, how is that any different than humility? Aren't they very similar? They are very similar. However, now this is where we're going to nerd out for just two seconds. I know you want more than two seconds, but we're in a hurry. So when humility and then meekness show up together, there is a bit of distinguishing between the two. When they show up individually, they often have a very similar meaning, but when set side beside one another, there is some distinguishing uh, aspects of them. Humility being often that uh, a disposition of view, a perspective, meekness having that as well, but flowing out of that, the lexical definition adds gentleness and considerateness. It, it, it could be described this way. Meekness is humility at work. Humility that doesn't just sit idly by and is like, I'm humble. I don't know what else to do. I'm just, I'm just humble. Like, no, it's, it's humility that does stuff. Some would define meekness as strength under control. I love that definition. Now, if you find, and I've warred it myself whether or not to use this, so obviously you know you should be nervous, but if one of my daughters brings back a young man 20 years from now, right? And he's never lifted a weight in his life and he couldn't defend his own physical apparatus, let alone those around him. And she said, Dad, but he's meek. I would say, don't mistake meekness or weakness for meekness. This one is weak. I could break him in half. But that isn't what we're talking about. Meekness actually is strength, but strength to a good purpose. 
being weak is not ever held up as like this quality of like, well, look, he's weak. What a, what a virtue. Like, no, it's the ability both with wisdom, heart intention, and action to use that strength rightly and appropriately for the good of those around you. It actually goes from that heart disposition of humility working towards others. It's a controlled suitableness in each and every situation. Now, not every situation demands that same sense of gentleness. I'm sure if you were to ask a, a, a doctor, now hopefully I'm not just like going out there, there's times where extreme uh, gentleness is required. And there's other times where I can imagine if you're having to dig a bullet out, you have to get after that thing, depending on the circumstance. If you look at the way Christ has been meek with you, are there not times in your brokenness where he's been extremely gentle and times in your rebellion where it was a little more firm and he was rooting that thing out? That's what meekness is. It's a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Gentleness is what it's called in that text. Matthew 5, 5, it's a mark of the kingdom people. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then lest we get too far afield and too focused on us, it is a mark of our king. The Lord Jesus Christ is described in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am Meek is the word he uses. I'm strong, but put to gentle purposes in your life. Matthew 21, verse 5, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, meek and mounted on a donkey. And then lastly, and I, I, there's sometimes where you read a verse, you're like, I know I've read that before, but it hits me in a brand new way this go around. 2 Corinthians 10.1, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. So here he is as the pastor begging this church that's just wrought with so many difficulties. I entreat you. And to what does he appeal? By the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. <sighs> what a text. What a, what, a, what a good pastor Paul is to take his congregation's eyes and say, with your dealing, because what is he talking about? With each other, let me beg you. Did Christ treat you that way? Or was he meek? You would have to say, you don't have to walk with him very long to know uh, he's, he's gentle. He's gentle with his weak, wounded, broken lambs. Therefore, Christian, don the same colors. Wear the regal robes of meekness with each other. Don't be harsh with one another. Don't be harsh with your kids. Don't be harsh with your spouse. Don't be harsh with your in-laws. You might be like, you're meddling now. I'm meddling. Be meek. Be gentle with those around you. Doesn't mean you're not firm. Doesn't mean you're a pushover and you're like, well, whatever people want. That's not the way Jesus was to you. Is to you still. He's meek. 
He moves and works in your life. So much so that Isaiah 42, verse 3, describes his relationship with every last one of his sons and daughters. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he doesn't quench. In those moments where you felt like your faith was a smoldering ember, he moved with such gentleness that he nursed it back to flame. When you felt as though you would break off under your own weight, he supports such a bruised reed. And the text goes on, I didn't write it down, but what qualifies him to be such a savior, it says, he isn't bruised and doesn't smolder. He actually uses the same two words that describe us and our brokenness and says, how is it that he can be such a meek savior? How can he deal with smoldering wicks and bruised reeds? And the answer is this, he doesn't smolder. He isn't bruised. He's a fit savior, fit for every wayward sinner who comes to him. Fourthly, this afternoon, We are to put on patience. You might say, I don't like this one. I didn't like the others, but I really don't like this one. Well, that's fine. Patience could be described as a refusing to retaliate, a a refusing to take vengeance, a refusing to hit back or to do ill. It is also uh, described as a result of the Spirit's work in your life. Galatians 5.22, yet again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. It actually is the work of God in your life. And then, yet again, it is a mark of Christian love. 1 Corinthians 13, actually the first mark of love. And it's like, oh, well, God knows us. He knows we need to hear this first. Love is patient. Love is patient. Love is refuses to repay evil with evil. Love refuses to give up in a fit of irritability or impatience or being done. In fact, I think we've lost something by moving to the newer English rendition, which would be patience, and the older English was more descriptive. Long vacationing. Long-suffering, to suffer a long time. You might say it's been a long time. That's why it's long-suffering. If it was short-suffering, you'd call it that, but you didn't call it that. To be patient is to endure difficulty for a long time. Now, I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it today, and I'll mention it probably uh, several times from this point onward. Patience isn't found as you're like sitting on the beach with the waves lapping at your legs and the sun and the breeze and like no kids squawking, it's just calm. You don't sit there and be like, man, I'm patient. Spirit been working on me. That's not when patience shows herself to the world. (laughs) Patience requires a sin-fallen world. It requires the chaos, the being sinned against, the being disappointed, the being in a world that isn't to your liking 
That's when patience, the beautiful virtue, either makes her appearance (laughs) or doesn't. We are called as God's people to be patient. And has Christ been patient with you? Some of you have been in Christ longer than I've been alive. You could teach me and others my age much of the patience of God. You could tell story upon story of his gentle, meek, patient pursuit of you. The king is adorned in such clothes. Christian, put on patience. Put on the king's colors. Be adorned as the new Adam is adorned. And be patient with those around you. Now I ask you as we close, which means I'm trying to buy a few more minutes. Is there a development in those five virtues? Look at them again. Is there a development? I trust I'm not squeezing the text for more uh, than there's there. But is there a movement from a heart that, that is, is bent towards the needs of others and then an intention in kindness to do those uh, good who have such needs and then in the midst Uh, of that kindness, choosing to not pursue my own wants and needs, but to pursue the wants and the needs of others, and then moving in strength and meekness and gentleness to meet those needs, and then in the meeting of them, to endure a long time patiently. Is maybe there, well, a a three-dimensional look at what life should look like, all the way from a heart that is bent towards their needs to the suffering long and the meeting of those needs. I think there is. That's the way that we as Christians glorify and enjoy the goodness of God. You might say, I thought it looked different. It looks like this. It looks like a people whose hearts are compassionate for one another. It looks like a people who are low in their own minds. It looks like a people intent on doing good. It looks like a people who are gentle in their dealings with one another. And it looks like a people who are patient all because their king is so thus adorned. So they are adorned. And has this not been the way that Christ has dealt with you. Could you look at the supper that's before us today any other way than to say as the elements that he has decreed be set before you as a remembrance, can you look at the bread and the cup and conclude anything else other than behold the compassion of the heart of Christ. Remember that, Christian. Could you look at the supper and deduce anything else other than he was intent on doing me good 
and nothing could push him off of it. Even in the face of the darkness, of the wrath of his father towards my sin and your sin, not even the wrath of God could dissuade him from moving in kindness to you. Remember that. Can you look at the bread and the cup and not see by the eye of faith a humble Savior, humble even to the point of death, death on a cross? Can you look at the bread and the cup and see anything other than a Savior who's meek, strong, but gentle in his dealing with weak, wayward sinners. Because you come to the table again, and dollars to donuts, you're thinking again, such a screw-up. Wayward again. Fallen again. Sinful again. Is he not gentle in his dealings with you? Can't you conclude again? I don't know how many times the supper's been set before you but you could not conclude anything short of this. Is he still patient? Yeah, he is. He's still putting grace before you. He knows your weakness. He knows your brokenness. And he says, knowing it, here is a beautiful means of grace. Eat and drink and be strengthened by your ever-patient Savior. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, move and work among us, we pray. Show the strength of your arm and encourage us, O God, to don these clothes by faith, knowing they are the good portion, knowing that they are the way by which you are glorified and the way that we enjoy you forever. O God, work in us, we pray. May we be these things in ever-increasing measures to one another. May the world know that we, that we are your disciples by the way that we love each other in these ways. We pray it in our Savior's name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com dot com.